You're listening to the New Life Podcast. We're one church in multiple locations based out of Aberdeen, South Dakota. We hope this message helps the gospel come alive for you and gives you an opportunity to encounter Jesus in a whole new way. For more info on New Life, you can check out our website at www.newlifeaberdeen.org. Let's get ready to listen to today's message. So here we go, Book of Esther. To try to tackle the book of Esther with all of its chapters and ensuing background themes and historical insights would literally be impossible. So we're going to focus in on a specific character trait that I'm going to end this thing with this morning. And we're going to focus in on this young woman's faith and how it grows throughout the course of her time in a kingdom that she probably, in all honesty, never, honestly, never really wanted to be a part of. There are a few women in the Old Testament that get the kind of face time that Esther gets. In fact, we covered the other one too in her faith story earlier in this series in the book of Ruth. But there is a specific dignity that's placed in scripture on women, but particularly on this woman named Esther. And so how many of you by show of hands know the story of Esther? And that's not necessarily social pressure, but do you know the story and its generalities? How many of you, I mean, maybe you could just be vulnerable about this because this was definitely me at a point in my life going into college where I thought I was a Christian. I literally knew nothing about hardly the Bible at all. How many of you don't know that much about Esther? Good. All right, so here we are, and this is the point. Esther is the story of a woman becoming queen despite all the odds, And that God is going to use this woman in a culture that's very corrupt. In fact, uh, if you are a woman in the Old Testament living outside of God's covenant, you, you are completely and utterly marginalized. So this Persian king that she's going to become married to is an absolute malchauvinistic pig. Let's just get that out of the way, out of the gate. He is a bad dude. In fact, I can't promote this movie, uh, but maybe you've seen him on the movie 300. Uh, he's known as Xerxes, and he is the most powerful man in the entire planet. And Xerxes loves what men still love 2,500 years later. This Persian king loves power. He loves beautiful women. He loves dominating everyone else around him. It's his way or the highway, and nothing has really changed under the sun. People in positions of power are oftentimes still corrupt. And so he is ruling over Jewish people and actually everyone in the known land, the Babylonians, the Jews, whoever comes in his path, he just annihilates them. And he does so with an arrogance that's profound. And so Xerxes has all sorts of stuff going on in his life. We're gonna get to that later. I'm gonna focus in on one key concept this morning of, of Esther's faith and how God uses her But he's looking for a wife in a nutshell, just as kind of like a a Reader's Digest version. And he finds this woman named Esther. In fact, he finds her through a good old-fashioned beauty competition. And we'll get to that later as well. But he finds her because she's the most beautiful woman in the land, and he's incredibly superficial. But she has this little secret that she shouldn't even be married to this king because she's Jewish, and her, her family member, Mordecai, tells her, don't tell him that you're Jewish, and he doesn't know that Mordecai is Jewish either. Don't tell them that's grounds for, for execution. That should never be happening. 
Uh, but as the story progresses, she keeps it silent. She ends up being the queen. And so no one really knows. In fact, she's, as we pick up the story today, she's married for a number of years and this secret is still under wraps. But just like every kingdom that's corrupt, just like every kingdom that's not centered on God and his principles for living, things go from bad to worse. And he doesn't just have a bad heart, he has a bad leadership team. And so on Xerxes' leadership team is this guy named Haman, who is incredibly prideful and arrogant and ends up having this massive disdain for the family member that's been raising Esther. And the disdain is this, that although their faith is silent, it starts manifesting publicly, which is where we're going today, in that Mordecai knows that he can only bow to God because he's Jewish. And Haman, in his arrogance, when he walks by, wants to be bowed before because he's a central figure in this empire. And as he hears that this guy Mordecai won't bow, he gets incredibly infuriated to the point of not just wanting to take Mordecai's life, but wanting to take Mordecai's life and every Jew's life in the kingdom. And by some estimates, that could have been upward of around 15 million people. He just wants to wipe them out. And so Queen Esther has a problem and her relative Mordecai has a problem. And this is how the tension starts manifesting in the text. We're gonna pick up in chapter four and I would encourage you to read this entire story or listen to this entire story on your online audio Bibles in your own time because we're gonna miss some juicy tidbits with one sermon, but here we go. Chapter four, verse one. At this point, everyone's upset because there's a genocide coming. And the Bible says this, when Mordecai learned all that had been done, Mordecai tore his clothes and put on sackcloth and ashes. And he went out into the midst of the city and he cried out with a loud and bitter cry. And so to put context to the storyline, think of an ancient Hitler who has one major objection to the Jewish people 24, 2,500 years ago, and that's to exterminate all of them. Mordecai hears about this. He knows that at the root of it, it's this hatred that Haman has towards him. And so he's probably carrying this guilt and this shame that he's somehow even attached to this storyline. And so the Bible says that he cries out with this loud and bitter cry, which would have taken things from a place of silent to a place where everyone's hearing about it, from a place of speaking passively about his faith to now actively crying out with sackcloth and ashes so that everyone can see he's in this state of mourning and he's in the state of mourning and everyone else is in the state of mourning. And so before this point, this is crucial, we see no praying, we see no scripture reading, we see no tithes and offerings, we see no sacrifice, we see real no indication that God is doing much of anything through Mordecai's life and now everything is changing. And even Esther, now she's going from a place because she's been trained in the same philosophy. You can be a follower of God, but shut your mouth about it. And so she's going from this place of transition in her own life where it's a passive faith to an active faith. And here's where the plot thickens, verse two. He went up to the entrance of the king's gate. For no one was allowed to enter the king's gate clothed in sackcloth. And in every province, wherever the king's command and his decree reached, there was great mourning among the Jews with fasting and weeping and lamenting, and many of them lay in sackcloth and ashes. And so it's having this domino effect. I think one of the big principles to pull out of this text, specifically for men, 
is that there are times when it's okay to lose it. Just a heads up for men, the Bible never says, because you're a man, thou shall not lose it. There are some situations in your life where you don't just cry, but you have this vulnerability within you that cries ugly tears, and Mordecai is in the ugly tear stage. Loud and bitter, vulnerable tears. And so, so for us, it looks a little different. We're not at risk of a specific genocide, but we have these heartaches in our life that happen to us that put on display our vulnerabilities. And so maybe it's a cancer diagnosis or your job is terminated or your kids are no longer following the Lord even though you've trained them up and raised them up in the way that they should go or your marriage is on the rocks. Whatever it is, there's this time where there's this release valve that God gives you. There's even an entire book of lamentations in the Old Testament related to weeping and mourning and grieving over the things of God. And Mordecai is doing that. Even Jesus in the New Testament, what does he do? Shortest verse. Jesus what? Jesus wept. Jesus wept. And so Mordecai's faith gets activated and it starts with this mourning and weeping. He understands that his faith in this moment, because now it's domino effect, everyone else is, is manifesting some of the same mourning signs. They're being more expressive about their faith. But there's a time where your faith goes from passive to active. And look at verse four. When Esther's young women and her eunuchs came and told her the queen was deeply distressed. She sent garments to clothe Mordecai so that he might take off his sackcloth, but he would not accept, accept them. He's just an absolute wreck. And so here's the story behind the story. Here's why things were so intense. They knew that these people had the power to carry out exactly what they were supposed to carry out. This wasn't just an idle threat. This was the most powerful known empire in the entire world. And so uh, we're gonna get more into this and focus in on Esther in just a little bit. But Esther has this moment where she's no longer having a passive faith, she's having an active faith, and she knows that that could come with her own head. Her own head is on the chopping block, literally. The only chance that this crisis can be avoided is if one person steps up and the Bible's gonna say in just a second, for such a time is this. And that person's name, the queen's name, is Esther. And so what Esther needed to do is she needed to confront her husband, the most powerful man in the world. And here's what it would have looked like for all practical purposes. There was a, an ancient archeological dig that showed the Persian king 2,400 years ago or so sitting on a throne and behind him was a soldier with an enormous ax. And this would have been a literal thing. And so you have Xerxes, you know, from the movie 300, behind him, he's on this massive throne, and there's this guy with an ax, and everyone knew what the ax meant. If you came to the king without permission, and here's how bad things were, even if you were the wife, even if you were the wife, if you didn't have permission, or if he didn't wanna see you, if you didn't have an appropriate appointment, your life could be on the line. And so what would, it would practically look like is he would have this staff. Like this is like medieval, or this is like ancient social distancing. You didn't get too close. He would have this staff, and if he would lower it to you when you would approach without this appointment, then you could come to him. If you did not, if he lowered the staff towards you, you could walk right up to him, and you'd put your hand at the end of the scepter, which meant he welcomed you. 
if the scepter stayed up, that was a sign for the guy with the ax to finally get the job that he always wanted. Even if you're the wife, and so she knows all of this, and, and she's probably seen it happen. She's been in the palace. She's watched this thing play out the wrong way, and it could have been for any number of reasons. He could have just been having a bad day. But her life is completely and utterly on the line, and now she has to step up, and here's how the story plays out. In verse 12, it says this, and they told Mordecai what Esther had said. And then Mordecai told them to reply to Esther. He says, do not think to yourself that in the king's palace you will escape any more than all the other Jews. For if you keep silent at this time, if you keep silent at this time, relief and deliverance will rise for the Jews from another place. But you and your father's house will perish. And who knows whether you have not come to this kingdom. Underline this in your Bible. There are two main statements from this text that are famous, and they're famous for a reason. And who knows whether you've not come to this kingdom for such a time as this. Underline that. For such a time as this. And then Esther told them to reply to Mordecai, go gather all the Jews to be found in Susa and hold a fast on my behalf and do not eat or do not drink for three days, night nor day. And I and my young women will also fast as you do, and then I will go to the king, though it is against the law. She had no right to go to this king. She's his wife. It's a messed up economy built on power and masculinity. Though it's against the law, and then here's the second line, if I perish, I perish. If I die, there's just some things worth dying for in my life, and these millions of Jewish people that are my people as queen. No one even knows I'm Jewish. These people are worth dying for. This cause is worth laying it all on the line for. Mordecai then went away and did everything as Esther had ordered him. And so I just wanna focus in this morning on Esther's faith and Esther's legacy. And the first thing is this, what I wanted you to underline, for such a time as this. That's her legacy. That all the events that transpired in her life, we're setting her up for this one moment. And here's what's so intense about all of that. That although we know the end of the narrative, she did not. Although we know that it works out in this storyline, she had no promise that everything was gonna work out. She had no promise that she wasn't gonna get the ax. She was like so many people that, that preceded her, that were ahead of her and behind her, people like John the Baptist who actually did get the ax, uh, people like Paul who uh, ended up being martyred for the faith, or Stephen or Peter who was crucified upside down. She, she was no better than them. She didn't have this promise that, that everything was gonna work out, but what she had was there are some things worth dying for, and if God calls me to do this, I'm gonna go from a passive faith to an active faith. I'm gonna make things public for such a time as this, for such a time as this, write this down if you write things down. For such a time as this is not a promise that hard times won't come. It's a promise that God is going to use you in those hard times. That no matter what happens, whether you have your head or you don't, that there is an end goal that's bigger than the problem that you're facing. And her faith is being activated in this moment. And Mordecai starts getting theological. He says, you don't have to do this. 
But just know this, if you don't, God's gonna use someone else because I know my God and I know what he's about and I know that he's in the business of saving in this situation and so you can go do whatever you want but know that God is sovereign, that his providential hand is over this situation and he is going to use this big moment for such a time as this for his glory. And the, sec- the second idea is this, and this is where I wanna camp out, that, that Esther has this light bulb moment where she then says this statement that defines her legacy. She says, if I perish, if this is the last day of my life, if I go up to take that scepter, look at me, and and I put my hand on it, and he pulls it away, and the ax comes forward, then it's worth it because God has called me to do this. Esther's growing in her faith to the point of saying, death is better than disobedience. Just a little confession time. I don't know where you're at. I I don't know if I'm there. The death is better than disobedience, and I'm gonna lay it all on the line. She's proving where her treasure lies. Esther has this moment of growth where she says to herself, there has to be more than this life. This this whole idea, I've been trained, and I wanna get to the backstory in just a second. I I wanna spend the rest of this time is I wanna give you the story behind the story and apply it. But she's trained in this mentality of survival. She's trained in this mentality that uh, I'm gonna look out for my best interest because no one can be trusted and I'm gonna live my faith out in a way that's, that's secret. I heard someone say this actually a few years ago and I wanna share it with you. There is a difference in how God views love and how we view love. And I heard someone say this and I wanna share it with you. We equate love, and if, if we don't cognitively define it this way, this is usually how it ekes out of us, and you can test it in your own life. We equate love with comfort. God equates love with trust. He's relational at his core. He doesn't always even need us because he's God and he's sovereign, just like Mordecai says, but we equate love with this idea of comfort, that our life's gonna be easier. In fact, there's a lot of false gospel messages that say, if you just have enough faith, you can have whatever you want. And, and, and Jesus is like a, a genie in a bottle that you rub him and, and you get whatever you want because his whole goal is to give you everything that you could ever desire so that you could be happy and prosperous. And so at the center of that gospel message is you. Life and betterment, self-improvement. God's view of love works differently. His main way that he shows his love to us and that he wants us to show his, our love to him is this idea that we trust him and follow him no matter the consequence. And Esther is finally getting it. This was a death wish for all practical purposes. And her desire was not to die. Here's what's so powerful about this. Look at me. Her desire was to truly live. And if she doesn't take this step, even in an emotional and spiritual sense, if she doesn't put all her chips in at the end of the table and say, this one's worth giving it all to, then she has no capacity to truly live because God has wired her in a way to surrender. So I'm I'm up at like 2.30. I don't know if it's that my dogs wouldn't sleep on Thanksgiving. I don't know that if it was my anxiety of wondering if they went to the bathroom on the floor one more time, if I'm gonna get a special bill from the hotel. But man, I'm telling you, I walk here Sunday, I didn't walk here, that's a lie. I come here Sunday morning, driving back from Fargo. I'm exhausted. 
And, and I thought last night that it, all the chips were going to fall in line. You guys ever have like those two or three? Anyone struggle to sleep? Just pray for the person that raised their hand on that one. It's, it's Sarah. I struggle with sleep historically. I've always struggled with sleep. I thought this was going to be the night. I come home last night from Thanksgiving, and then I was going to sleep like nine, ten hours, and, and, and everything was going to fall in line. I was going to come here Thanksgiving, and, and I was just going to be super happy. I came here exhausted because 2.30 in the morning, boom, I woke up. And I woke up thinking about Queen Esther because I've talked, we went through the whole book several years ago of Esther. It's a powerful book of the Bible. And there, there was this idea that was permeating within me of why this situation for Esther is so much bigger than even if we went through it. Because to understand Esther, you have to understand her story. For Esther to say this statement, if I perish, I perish, is a bigger statement than if you said it, depending on your situation. I wanna explain what I mean by that. This is my 2.30 in the morning epiphany uh, as a therapist, and so I, I wanna dig into that. At the heart of Esther's story is something that defines her. And it defines a certain percentage of the population that's not everyone. So Esther's story wasn't kind of bad. Esther's story was an absolute train wreck. At the heart of Esther's story, she is a survivalist. And so here's the story behind the story. I said at the beginning of this thing, she won a beauty contest. She didn't exactly win a beauty contest in the way that we would define a Miss America pageant. This was the Miss Persia pageant, but it was corrupt to the absolute core. And I want to explain that and then insert ourselves into the storyline so that we can see that her faith was greater than we ever could have imagined. Because Esther was a survivalist. She was already watching corruption at a level that we can't even imagine. She's not the first queen in the narrative. The first chapter, there's a, there's a whole other queen that steps onto the scene. And so here's what Esther knows as she walks into this is probably a, a 14 or 15-year-old beautiful girl that's around all sorts of perversion. The way that the Bible starts with the book of Esther is that there is this massive, corrupt, disgusting, perverted party that's taking place. Again, nothing new under the sun. Unlike our parties, this one lasts a little longer. This one's going on for around 180 days. One of the biggest bingers that's ever existed in the known world. And the king, in all of his arrogance, allows everyone into the party. And as he's allowing everyone into the party, he's got these young friends that give him bad advice. And this is how misogynistic the culture is in Persia. As he's allowing everyone into the party, he calls for this beautiful bride to show her off. Uh, we don't know all the details. Maybe he wanted her to dance for them. Maybe he just wanted her to dress scandalous. But what we do know, or maybe even worse, don't let your minds wander too much. But what we do know is that he wanted all of his butt drinking buddies to see how good looking his wife was. And this queen has the audacity to tell the most powerful man in the world, no. Now, that seems like common sense in today's world, but this was radical. And so he gets with his supposed wise men who want to know what to do. They don't know what to do with the situation. He says, well, we better follow the law. We better vanish her. And this was the line of thinking. This is how misogynistic it all was. We better vanish her because if our wives or the women around our kingdom catch wind that this woman can talk to the king like that, then basically what they're saying is this. 
then how do you think they're gonna talk to us? And so their power is threatened because it's an economy built on power. And so she's vanished. And now the same young, stupid men have another idea. You know what we should now do? We should have a sorority with hundreds of virgins. And they should come to, come to the kingdom and for a period of a year, we're gonna get them ready with spices and ointments and we're gonna do their hair and we're gonna pick the best of the best of the best and they're all gonna get a number like they're going through a fast food line. And when their number's called, they get to go meet the king. And so night after night after night, and Esther's, well, this is how corrupt it really is. Mordecai's pushing this agenda. Esther, here's your opportunity. She's just a high school kid. I can't even imagine the trauma of this experience, knowing that if in any way you displease this man, you're dead. And so she goes to this corrupt, disgusting beauty pageant. She makes the cut because she's gorgeous. And then she's waiting on her number to be called as she's being prepped for uh, what is known as probably like a year. And it's this massive, disgusting sample platter in her life. Or she's probably making friends with all the other girls that are auditioning for the same part. And they go before the king and it's not, hey, how was your day? You know, I've really noticed your intellect. I've noticed your talent and your abilities. I've fallen in love with your character. No, it's only time to meet the king at bedtime and then you're sent away back to the harem. This is the world that she's living in. Where are the dads in this storyline? I know it's the Old Testament. I know that these people are godless. I know, I know this king is corrupt, but think about it. Let's just translate it to our own world. Where are the dads? Where is the justice? Can, can you even imagine what this girl is going through? Maybe she's like number 293, and she finally gets called up to the drive through line. She has her time with the king, she's sent away, and he decides that she is, he says, I love this girl Esther. The way that translates is, I think she's incredibly good looking, and so she, by God's providence, in that sense, she becomes queen and actually saves people in this storyline, but she is absolutely living in this day spa, and, and I have no other way to say it but this, she's raped. She's raped. She's living in this day spa, she's treated like a sample platter, and she's absolutely traumatized by this person who wants nothing to do with her and only wants something from her. And the travesty is this. It still happens today, right? And so, so you can't really understand this, this story unless you understand the backstory, Unless you understand that her trauma is significant. And her faith is incredible because what God's asking her to do is counterintuitive to everything she's been wired to do. And the reason I said that her story is different, than, now some, some of our stories, if we we're just to get raw, some of us have stories that don't look too different. Trauma is a real thing, but then getting behind the story, here's what I couldn't sleep about last night. I feel like I've missed this storyline as a pastor. I've preached this before. What makes her faith so incredible is that she does everything that's counterintuitive to her wiring when she went through the trauma of being treated like a slab of meat in a drive through window. Because there's something that happens in the heart of every person 
that's dealt with trauma, that if you don't understand that, you don't understand the story, and if you don't understand the story, then you don't understand the great faith, and you walk away with, with this story just missing a piece of it. Esther has been through trauma, and I just want to explain that. At the heart of trauma is the belief that people and environment can't be trusted. At the heart of trauma is a belief that anything can't be trusted, and then sometimes it has to just, when the pressure gets too much, it has to be avoided because the anxiety starts mounting in your heart if you've been through trauma. At the heart of trauma is a belief that the world is not safe, and there is one key thing. I will tell you this, as a therapist who's not personally practicing right now, but can give you information in bulk about how things work on a psychological level, at the heart of any trauma victim is a desperate need, look at me when I tell you this, this is important, is a desperate need to be in control, period. Esther's core value was don't throw me something that I can't see coming because I've already been in trauma in my teen years. I've already seen more murder take place by the hands of this ruthless killer who calls me wife when he wants to and then sends me back to a harem. At the heart of her need to feel safe is a need to maintain control in her life. It is an absolute essential victim uh, issue to any trauma victim. And so what God's asking her to do is the hardest thing that she could ever do He's asking this trauma victim to surrender to his plan. And so when Esther makes this statement, if I perish, I perish, what she's really saying is this, God, I am going to trust you even in the midst of all of my trauma. And so for that reason, Her story of faith is my favorite. Anyone in here just have a heart for the underdog? You hear about that story of that high school kid and it just breaks your heart. You thought this story was, this sermon was getting a little boring because there was too much detail, me being insecure to you. And then I started talking about the trauma and you start paying attention. Do you know why? because God has hardwired that within you and the Holy Spirit's working in your life. But I said something at the beginning of this sermon series that I wanna repeat now because Esther takes the cake. The definition of faith is believing that God is in control and that he's worth following regardless of where he takes you. That that belief that you have in the gospel has to go from just merely a belief to an attitude and to a mentality of surrender in your life and Esther gets it. She's not saying a word. She's a trauma victim. She wants to be in control, and she wants to control the script, but at the heart of the gospel, it's not your script. Are you tracking? It's not your script. And so God's asking us to do the same thing. We haven't been through what she's been through. Maybe similarly, we don't know everyone's story. We know that statistically, about a quarter of the people in this room have been through some type of abuse, but hers was obviously extreme. She has this script, she has this secret, she has this identity that's been redefined and she's finally gotten to a place where she feels comfortable and safe and God is saying, I need you to flip the script, give me control and if you perish, you perish, but trust me, I've got this. And for her, that would have been absolutely nerve wracking. This would have been earth shattering. She finds something else out in a way of healing that we all need to find 
in this storyline for our own lives, that there is freedom in surrender. That control is merely an illusion. And that for us now, thousands of years later, with the rest of the storyline, that Jesus Christ is absolutely ruling and reigning. Man, do we have a vantage point this Thanksgiving of seeing the rest of the story. It all works out for Esther. She confronts the king. He doesn't kill her. He, he actually has high affection for her in the way that he sees her. And this evil ruler's plan for genocide backfires on him and he loses his own life. And so what she does though in this story, and I just wanna be very clear about this because I wrote a bunch of stuff down even this morning, is that she moves from a place of self-preservation to surrender and what God is calling us to do in our faith is move from a place of self-preservation, which is selfish in nature, to surrender where you're saying, Jesus, whatever you tell me to do, if I perish, I perish. I'm gonna follow you no matter what. I'm gonna follow you no matter what, even when I don't understand what the outcome can be. Here's the beauty of the gospel. Jesus, the most famous scripture now in the entire Bible is John 3.16, right? That God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him will not what? Will not what? Perish. Perish. We, we have a vantage point that Esther didn't have. We have the end of the story. That even if we perish, we perish, but it's just temporary. It's just fleeting. It's going from one life to a better life because Jesus Christ loves us so much in the midst of our own broken Esther state that he comes down to earth, that he dies on a cross for our sins, that he raises from death, that he's born in a manger. We're gonna be celebrating that for the next several weeks, that he's the King of kings and the Lord of lords, humbly coming to earth, dying on a cross, raising from death, so that we don't have to perish, so that we have the rest of the storyline. But what he's asking from Esther, what he's asking from Peter and Paul and Stephen and all these other great characters of faith as you walk into the New Testament is this, you need to go from a place of self-preservation from self-preservation to faithfulness no matter what. That the only way you're gonna find freedom in your struggle is through this mentality of surrendering to me because I'm the king. I'm a better king than Xerxes. I have a better kingdom. I'm ruling and reigning. I have defeated death. I've conquered it. I'm not a way, I'm the way. I am your only hope. And if you surrender your life to me, Know this, that there is freedom in the trauma and there's freedom in the surrender. Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the hope that we have in you. Just ask that, that we come into this space and no matter where we're at, that we would lay our life down at the foot of the cross. That these heroes of the faith, specifically these women that were so marginalized, these heroes of the faith that followed you faithfully in the Old Testament would point us to a Savior that's so good. And then in our own hearts this Christmas, as we come before your throne, we wouldn't have an attitude of self-preservation, but of surrender. If there's anyone in this space that doesn't know you as Savior, that's been doing their own thing, I pray right now that they would be convicted of their sin.
they'd repent of it, that they would say, Jesus, you are the only thing that's certain. I believe that you died on a cross in my place for my sin and that you rose from death so that I can have life. And this Thanksgiving, I surrender my life to you. I'm thankful for that cross and I'm thankful for your resurrection. Move in our hearts, move in these stories, Jesus. We pray this in your name and everybody said, amen.